Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. It's so great to be with you. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Our conversation is about what matters most in our life, our mind, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. I wanted to share uh, this great news with you. Our new book is out. The book is International, I'm sorry, Intentional Parenting for International Audience, Intentional Parenting, um, a practice guide to awareness integration theory uh, with two of my wonderful colleagues, Dr. Nicole Jafari, who is um, a professor at many of the Southern California universities, and her expertise is in um, human development. And also Dr. Eileen Manukian, and her specialty is um, childhood, um, early childhood development. So the three of us um, got this book, uh, which is uh, published about two weeks ago. And um, it's all over the Cambridge Scholarly Publishers, or you can have it also in Amazon. And what this book does is really go over different stages of life from infancy all the way to teenagers and you know, young adulthood and takes um, looks at the developmental stages, growth, uh, cognitive and emotional. And from the, uh, the My Model Awareness Integration Theory looks at parenting and how to approach your children at different stages of life and every age that, um, that is important for them and you, because sometimes it's very, very difficult to go through different stages. I remember watching um, this uh, picture that had uh, said that every time we uh, figure out all the answers to the questions of the world, they change the questions. And sometimes I think parenting different stages of life of our children feels that way. By the time you kind of figure out exactly what you got to do with your child at that stage, their developmental stage, their needs changes. And then you're like, uh, uh, now what? I, everything I knew and I was working no longer works. And that's the truth. And how we can change at every stage, knowing what's coming, the next developmental stage of our children. And therefore, we can adapt ourselves and have the knowing of what to do. Now, for all of the wonderful coaches and therapists who are out there who are, want to learn the awareness integration theory and want to utilize that with their clients and uh, patients, the book, uh, Awareness Integration Therapy, Clear the Past, Create a New Future, and Live a Fulfilled Life is available for you. And our conferences and workshops are available. And I will definitely um, share more and more about those as um, the time allows and we're getting closer to that, um, to those times. Now, um, in this episode, I chat with Matthew Dix. He is the author of Someday is Today and Storyworthy and eight other books, a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, an award-winning elementary school teacher. He teaches storytelling and communications at universities, corporate workplaces, and community organizations. Dix has won multiple uh, Moth Grand Slam um, story competitions and together with his wife created an organization called Speak Up, 
to help others share their stories. They also co-host the Speak Up Storytelling podcast. And today we will be talking about his book, Someday is Today, 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your your Creative Life. You can visit him online at uh, matthewdix.com. And I'm sure you will have an amazing um, listening. I really enjoyed our conversation today with him. So I'm positive you will enjoy it too. Don't forget, subscribe to this podcast, my YouTube channel, and connect with me um, through all of the social media. If you wanted the self-help book, um, to, um, to really go over and work uh, from the awareness integration theory on yourself, um, the book Life Reset, the awareness integration path to create the life you want is um, on Amazon and anywhere else that you get your books and uh, go through it. Let me know the impact of that in your life and um, how, um, how it worked because I think that um, I really want to know. We've done a lot of research on it and I think that um, I'd love to hear how it has also worked for you. Go to uh, my website, fujonzang.com. You can find all of the books there uh, or any of my social media. And I love to hear from you. So um, here he is, Matthew Dix. Matthew Dix, it's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, You have written many books, but the one we would like to talk about today is Someday is Today, 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. So someday, you say it's the worst word. (laughs) True, yes. It's a, it's a terrible word because it's essentially permission to procrastinate. It is an assumption that there will be a tomorrow and that there is always plenty of time to do everything. And I think it's a trap really, because I think people spend enormous amounts of their lives thinking someday they're going to do something. And then either they run out of the capacity to do that thing, or quite frankly, they run out of time to do that thing. I, I actually think tragically, a lot of people continue to think someday until the day they die. And at that point, it's just too late for anything. So it's a word that traps people into not chasing their dreams. So you share about uh, the reason you wrote this book was because you do so much. There are so many things, not only you're a writer, but there's so many other things that you do. And people kept asking you, how come, how, how do you do all that you do? And uh, therefore you said, all right, I'll tell you how I do it. And then you went, you know, systematically over the things that have created um, your life in a way that is maximizing efficiency and fun and you know um, enjoyable, you're fulfilled in life in all aspects of it. Yeah, it was a question I just got asked all the time. I stand in front of people a lot as a teacher and a storyteller and an author. And when it comes time for that Q and A, people are always curious how I am a teacher and an author and a storyteller and all of the other things that I do. And I always 
felt like if you would just give me 18 hours, I would help you and I'd be able to point you in the right direction. But no one except maybe my cat wants to spend 18 hours with me. So I would always offer sort of two or three strategies and I'd send them on their way and I'd think I didn't really help them at all. And so by writing the book just this weekend, I was teaching a workshop to a bunch of people and the question came, how do you manage to get all the things you do in your life done? Plus you've got a family and you've got you play golf and you've got friends and all of this. And I said, well, actually now I have a book that answers that question. And I was just so pleased. It was the first time I could say, I genuinely have an answer to the question. It is a book, go buy it, go listen to it. It will help you. So that was the origin of the book. So when you look at the uh, 22 elements, um, if you could tell me what is it that you could offer people to say, um, this, these are the most important ones that you, you can bring it into your life and create an efficiency in, in, in what you do. Well, I think the most important thing people can do is to make decisions about their lives. I think most people live lives of least resistance. They're watered down a mountain. And I think oftentimes the way they lead their life is how other people or sort of the universe has pushed them along. I don't think a lot of people sort of sit down and give themselves the opportunity to reflect and say, where am I? Am I happy where I am? Am I happy where I'm going? And am I on a path to get where I want to be? And so as a result, I think sometimes, actually, I think a lot of times people find themselves in places in their lives that they never expected and frankly don't want to be. My favorite question to ask people isn't what you do for a living, but how did you end up doing the thing that you do for a living? And so often those stories are tragic because they're often sort of missteps and little bits of fortune, but they're often not what they actually envision themselves doing uh, at some point in their life. So if we just start making some active decisions about ourselves, even if they're bad decisions, I think a bad decision is so much better than no decision at all. So I think you can start by doing that, by picking a point on the horizon that you want and then deciding what steps will get you there and begin making those steps. That's so true. I think. Um you know, you work with uh, children. Um, I've been a therapist for 30 years. So I work a lot after people come, um, either they don't know what they want to do because they've only kind of listened to what their parents in the society said they should be doing. And they really didn't explore what they love to do. And then they get to do what they should be doing. And they're not that happy, but somehow get attached to it and, you know, built a life, a structure around it and then yet not be fulfilled. So, um, and then they're taking the time, they're doing the time every day. Let's say they're doing the time every day. Right, yes, they are. <laughs> but not, you know, but not feeling right. And one of the rules you share in your book is include the element of time as a primary factor in all the decision-making. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, well, it's our, it is our most precious commodity. Is the th it's the thing that we share with Bill Gates and we shared with Steve Jobs and all the people of the world who have built amazing things. We all have the same number of minutes in the day. And the problem is, is that people dither their time away. They don't value it in the way that they should. They just, again, assume that there will always be another day. So that can mean something as simple as, for example, my friend just took a new job and I said, what's the commute? And he said, I'm not sure. I think it's maybe 40 minutes. And I thought, how could you not be sure? Because when you take a new job, that means you've now committed your life to 
a travel back and forth every day. Now I live five minutes from the school where I teach intentionally. That means that if my friend is spending 40 minutes a day commuting to his job, 80 minutes in total, and I am spending 10 minutes in total, he's never going to catch up to me. I will always be more productive than him. Now he's going to make an argument that I like spending time in the car. It's my way to decompress. And I'll say, well, I can just drive home and go for a walk. Or I could just drive around my neighborhood for 40 minutes if I really needed it, but at least I have some optionality there, right? People make excuses for the bad decisions they make or the lack of decisions because not knowing what your commute is, is a lack of a decision. So it can be as simple as that, or it can just be our lives are filled with these little increments of time that we waste. You know, my wife calls them the little black holes that I fill all the time. And so that means so often in life, we have five minutes or eight minutes or 10 minutes in between things. And the most common thing people use with that time is they look at their phone. They doom scroll through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, which is something we didn't do at all 15 years ago. And now we've somehow made this a priority in our lives, which doesn't help us in any way. So I always encourage people, make a list of all the things that you could do in 10 minutes and start filling those 10 minutes with things that make you feel better and good. That can just be pet my cat, which I know, you know, produces positive chemicals in my brain and makes me feel better about the world. It could mean I'm going to fold half that load of laundry now so that I only have to fold the other half later on. You know, it can mean I'm going to go sit under a tree for 10 minutes while I wait for my son to find his shoes again, because I know that sitting under a tree and looking up into the branches improves my brain chemistry. All of these things are better than staring at my phone and waiting for something to pass. So recognizing those little bits of time and starting to use them can change everything for us. And then you share about a minimum, you talked about the phone. And what I decided to do is I went on Duolingo um, and this is not an advertisement, but Duolingo, but I'm really impressed by them. Um, so I started learning Spanish. So now right. what I do is <laughs> when I walk to even to the restroom or wherever I am, I'm on a line or wherever it is, I'm like, you know what? Instead of scrolling through the social media, I'm going to learn something. Yeah. And this has been my training on Spanish in exactly those times that you're talking about putting it in some productive way where I don't have time anywhere else to kind of put that learning in there. Right. And even if you don't end up learning Spanish in the end, you're exercising your, your brain in a way that Instagram never exercises your brain. You know, someone recently taught me that uh, if we learn to stand on one foot and have better balance in life, we're more likely to live longer, that people with good balance are less likely to fall down. Fewer falls mean fewer trips to the hospital and a longer life. So when I brush my teeth, you know, I have one of those toothbrushes that brush for two minutes and it signals me. And so, yeah, one side, I stand on my right foot and I see how long I can stand on my right foot while brushing my teeth. And then on the other side, I stand on my left foot and I practice my balance every night. Now, my wife thought I was crazy in the beginning. Why are you standing on one foot? You look like a flamingo, you know, brushing your teeth. But there's, I'm making use of the time that otherwise I would have just stared into space while brushing my teeth. So I love what you're doing because regardless of your mastery of Spanish, you're just improving your brain. You're working it in a way that's going to be helpful to you in the future. I love that. I'm going to take that on from tonight as I'm brushing my teeth. Um, I'm going to take that on. I'll just do that. <laughs> I'm always looking for a way that I can sort of maximize the time that I have in a meaningful way that will produce long-term results. People, 
people always want success in large gulps. You know, they want magic pills. And it's so hard for people to embrace incrementalism, the belief that tiny steps taken repeatedly over and over and over again, those are the ones that are gonna produce something. Yes. In one of the rules you say, consider all the stuff you didn't consider when choosing or changing a career. Sorry, can you say that again? My cat was acting crazy. <laughs> sure. I said uh, one of the rules, rule three is consider all the stuff you didn't consider when choosing or changing a career. Oh, yeah, right. So there, there's just so many things when we're deciding what we want to do or what we don't want to do. One of my favorite things is to interview people in the job that you're considering moving on to. And my favorite one is interview the spouse of the person who has the job that you're considering moving into. Because people, like I said, will often justify their bad decisions. So if someone takes a new job at a new company, they don't want to feel like a fool. And particularly if you're trapped in that job, you sort of have that salary and now you're stuck there. And so when you ask them how the job is, they were often going to tell you that it's more positive than it really is for them. But the person who always knows the truth is the spouse. And so you say, can I talk to your spouse about how they feel about your new position? It's, it's just the, it's the awareness that we tend to think we know what's best for us. And there's enormous hubris in the idea that we actually can see the best step forward for ourselves, that we absolutely know what the right course is. You know, I think that's just enormous assumptions that we know the world in a way that is impossible. And so asking yourself, what every new job or what every new adventure entails. And then what are you giving up in order to do that? I think is so critical before we make a step. Um, I love what you said. Um, I love what I do. I'm a therapist. I love what I do and I work on trauma. So, um, you know, human mind is fascinating to me. I've done it for 30 years and I probably take, um, I'm known for one of the hard, um, uh, taking the hardest cases, like even in my own community, even other therapists where they work with people and they get into heart traumas, they're like, yeah, go to Fushan. <laughs> one of the things that when you say, you know, talk to a spouse, I've, when I've gone to retreats and everything else, and I came back and I asked my husband, you know, how do you think these retreats have changed me? And one of the things he said is, which I didn't really realize, um, you know, kind of like, you know it, but you don't realize it. Yeah. Uh, he said that when you are done with your clients, it's still on you. Like you come mm -hmm. out of the office um, and your face, your energy, your whole system, it's still carrying that kind of trauma. It's almost like you're re they're releasing, but it's in the room. I'm working with them. I'm going in there with, with their trauma. And he said, some of the retreats that I've gone, um, it has helped to me uh, not hold that energy a lot and it's released. So as I work with them, even though I, I come out of the room or I come out of the office um, and come home, I'm, I'm present. I'm no longer holding that energy. And that was so important to know because then it's part of now uh, making sure that I do a ritual to get that out of my system, making sure that I go to these types of retreats. So, I, you know, it energizes me again. But what you're saying is that sometimes we're so in it and we even think we love it and we do love it, 
but we're not aware of how it impacts everyone else around us, which is still part of us that we're not right. seeing. It's kind of like that shadow side. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we spend enough time thinking about ourselves. You know, as a storyteller, I found that people like me, people who are constantly looking for stories to share on the stage, we're deeply curious about ourselves. And I think we're self-centered in what I always think of as a positive way, meaning we afford ourselves time to think about ourselves. I just spent a weekend with these 12 would-be storytellers, people who are learning to tell stories. And all weekend, I kept giving them permission to just sort of go off and not think about spouses and children and clients and customers and neighbors and parents, only think about yourself, where you are, who you are, how you got here, where you're going. And these people came back with these thoughts that they had never had in their lives before because they had never sort of pushed everything away and given themselves permission to be selfish a little bit. Like I'm only going to think about myself. I think when we do that, we make better choices. We become more self-aware. I, I think our position in the world becomes more clear to us. And I, I think all of those things are required if you want to chase a dream, make something happen, you know, do something wonderful. You talk about relinquishing and reassigning tasks. And um, I totally agree. I have decided at age 60 that I really want to do what I want to do. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to handle um, hiring and paying for the tasks that I don't love to do. And it takes so long for me to get a mastery at it. So I've decided to only do the things I'm, in, I'm I've created mastery and pay for others who've spent the time and created mastery on other things. And that's that's what you uh, you have shared and offered. Yeah, I, I think that when you can pay for it, I think that's wonderful. And I think sometimes people don't realize they can pay for it because if they just sort of do a cost benefit analysis, my wife did it for me. She said, you know, she said, Matt, we should hire someone to mow the lawn. And I said, no, I'm not going to hire someone. I'm going to mow the lawn myself. I'm not going to spend that money. And she quickly did some math for me and pointed out, you will make more money writing in the hour that you will spend not mowing. And we can give a little bit of that money over to the person who's going to mow the lawn and keep the rest ourselves. So a lot of times it's just that calculation of can I be doing something productive that I love doing rather than the thing that needs to be done? But then the other thing is, I think people fill their lives with stuff that doesn't matter, but they start to believe matters. And as a result, they waste a lot of time. You know, I walk into these homes with these exquisitely organized pantries, you know, where everything is placed in a certain way. And it's clear an enormous amount of care went into this process. And I understand that some people sort of need that to feel balanced and okay. But if you don't need that and you're doing it because you saw it once and now you think you need to do it or your parent did it and now you think you need to do it, I look at those pantries and I think all of that time, at the end of your life, are you gonna look back and think, thank goodness I always had an organized pantry throughout my life, right? That's never gonna be the case. You know, when if you speak to hospice workers, they always say the things people talk about at the end of life is often regret. And it's regret for not spending time with people enough, not having traveled enough and having been afraid to chase things that seemed a little scary. And so I think things like organized pantries get in the way of those things. And I think those are the things that we regret at the end of our lives is the time we spent doing things that ultimately meant nothing. So we have to look for those opportunities to get rid of the things that for some reason we've adopted as important 
but recognize they're utterly meaningless and we should just push them to the side. Talking about pantries. <laughs> <laughs> There's two pieces in that. I think that what I found that organizing a system was creating more efficiency for me. True. Yes, that that is absolutely I didn't possible. Have to go if I wanted to find something, I didn't have to take five uh, minutes of where is it in the pile versus it was right there, um, and then it, I didn't have the anxiety and then the frustration. But I do think what I'm hearing from you is if you're becoming obsessive about it, that everything has to you know be marked in specifically the same font and you know doing all of these things, maybe we're going a little bit beyond the you know the task itself becomes uh, some sort of an obsession versus it's done because of a produ actually productivity. Yes, or you're doing it because you saw someone else do it. You know, as a as a school teacher, I watch my colleagues spend hours putting together bulletin boards that children look at for five minutes and then never see again. They just become the wallpaper of the classroom. You know, I'm fascinated by the borders that teachers put around bulletin boards. You don't see like if in a business place, borders around bulletin boards. A bulletin board is a place to stick some information that you can see quickly. And yet for some reason, teachers now feel the need to go out and purchase borders that are thematically applied to the curriculum of the moment. And so they're changing borders and nobody cares. I've never had a border on any of my bulletin boards in my entire life. And in my mind, I think I probably have about six hours of my life that I used for something else while my colleagues were out buying and replacing borders on bulletin boards. I think that's the kind of thing that people do because they saw someone else do it so they thought that was what they had to do too, as opposed to saying, is this how I wanna spend my time? And is it actually necessary? And most importantly, is it getting me to a place I wanna be, right? If your organized pantry is getting you to a place where your cooking is more efficient and you know, you're less anxious about having the right ingredients, fantastic. But it's, if it's because your sister's pantry is really organized and you feel like you need to keep up with your sister, you're making a terrible mistake. Yeah, the intention is important, such as like for border concept, the first thing that came to my mind is a lot of people like visual beauty and right. that that just makes them feel better. And then so that becomes maybe a priority, the, the feel good of the beauty versus just like a productivity of what is. But you're right that you know the intention that I'm do, I'm doing something. If it's if I'm gaining something out of it that I really enjoy, then that's part of uh, the enjoyment. You yes. always talk about curiosity kills productivity. I love this line. Curiosity kills productivity. Cultivate deliberate in curiosity. <laughs> Share about that. Yeah, it's. I think we spend a lot of times of our in our lives thinking about things that don't help us in any way and pursuing things that are irrelevant to us. I know, for example, that I think it was Johnny Depp was just in court with his wife or ex-girlfriend. I don't actually know what it was about. I heard it sort of on the fringes that Johnny Depp and a woman were in court because they have a disagreement. I don't know if it was divorce or whatever it was. But I know that a lot of people in my life were talking about it all the time. I was, at, I was at a birthday party over the weekend and I heard lots and lots of people talking about it. I was aggressively, deliberately incurious about that situation because first, I don't think I need to get involved in Johnny Depp's personal life. I don't understand why anyone needs to, but more importantly, while everyone else was invested in that, 
a moment that will ultimately be fleeting, forgotten, and meaningless, I chose to invest my energy by being curious in something that was meaningful to me, that mattered to me. In fact, I remember while the Johnny Depp conversation was happening at this birthday party, my son and I were wrestling on the couch. You know, my 10-year-old son and I were trying to hurt each other in a fun way. I know that in the long run, you know, when I'm lying on my deathbed someday, looking back on that birthday party, I'm going to remember wrestling Charlie on a blue couch. I don't think anyone's going to remember talking about Johnny Depp. And if they do remember, I think they're going to regret the time spent. I think it's, it's wasteful. And so I am aggressively curious about things that I think will produce positivity in my life. But anything that doesn't help me, anything that isn't going to get me to a place I need to be, or anything that's out of my control completely, I try not to know anything about it at all. And I think I'm always better for it. I think I have more time and I think I'm in a happier place because of it. I'm also hearing you say um, that people create priorities for themselves at the time. And sometimes um, the sometimes the priorities that they create, it's not relevant in to, tomorrow. So when when you look at a bigger picture of looking at something, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, does it still hold, uh, in a sense, very, very important for you? And coming from is almost like envisioning the, the tomorrow and then coming back today and creating something and putting your time and effort and focus on something that it's long lasting and meaningful versus short term spurges of something uh, that you, you have to do. Yes. I mean, if I lived my life sort of in the moment, trying to please the current version of myself, I'd be playing golf and eating cheeseburgers all the time. Those would be the things that I would like to do. But, you know, I have something called the hundred year old plan, which is when I have to make these decisions about how to spend 10 minutes or 10 hours or the next week, I ask the hundred year old version of myself. I imagine myself on my deathbed at a hundred. And I say to that version of me, how should I spend this time? And that version of me never says like binge watch a Netflix show. That version of me never says open up Twitter and doom scroll and find out what's terrible about the world right now, right? That person always tells me, spend time with your family, exercise, get in that kayak, pet that cat because it's only gonna live for 12 years and it's gonna be over before you know it. I think if we trust the wants and the needs of ourselves in the very moment all the time, I think we're making a terrible mistake. I think that's when we don't reach long-term goals. That isn't to say that if you suddenly want an ice cream cone and you really need an ice cream cone, go get your ice cream cone. But I think the more we think about what we want tomorrow, the actions of today will be better off for us and will lead to a better life. So enjoy today, but also look at what really matters in the tomorrow. So part of yeah. what you say is focus on what really matters today and tomorrow. And then you said, you're not the center of the universe, so stop acting like it. <laughs> yes, well, it's hard because I think sometimes, I mean, always, we are sort of the protagonist of our own stories, right? We just assume that because we are always thinking about us, everyone else is always thinking about us. So, you know, the spotlight effect, you know, proves that there's lots of experiments where they'll send a college student into a classroom full of kids with a, a neon shirt with a ridiculous, you know, collection of words on the shirt. 
And at the end of the class, they'll ask that kid who was wearing the shirt, how many people in the class do you think noticed the shirt that you're wearing? And they'll say, you know, most of them. And it turns out no one actually noticed that person because we're all noticing ourselves. We're all sort of in our own bubbles. And once we accept the fact that people are not paying attention to us nearly as much as we ever think they are, almost not at all, right? Like, yeah. As soon as we accept that, then suddenly our lives get a lot easier because now we don't have to worry about sort of like what we look like all the time. We can go out running without having to get dressed to go out running. You know, we don't have to worry about having a bad hair day. There's a great experiment on when people have good hair days, they'd go out into the world and interact with all these people. And then they would ask those people, what did you think of that person's hair on that day? Nobody notices. The only person who knows you're having a good hair day is you which means the only person who knows you're having a bad hair day is you. And yet somehow we allow good hair days and bad hair days to affect our disposition, our productivity, our efficiency, the way we move through life on a particular day. But if you just remind yourself, the spotlight effect tells us no one's actually paying attention to us. We can move with impunity. And I think it allows us to be happier and more productive. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, as I think I have a bad hair day today. Sure <laughs> and I think it looks great. <laughs> you know, this strand right here is not doing what I'm asking it to do. So yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I always tell people, I know people who spend enormous amounts of time sort of planning what they're going to wear for a holiday party, right? And then I ask them a year later, can you remember what you wore on the holiday party? And more importantly, can you tell me what anyone else at the holiday party was wearing? It's completely lost to us. And yet we invest two hours of our lives in the closet, throwing out 14 outfits, trying to find the perfect one, which no one will remember, including ourselves. Yep. It's a fleeting uh, comment. You know, even if somebody um, notices, it's a two seconds of a fleeting opinion which in a big, you know, in a long term doesn't make sense. Even, even for us to, that when we have opinion, we always have opinion about it. Everybody has opinions every two seconds. It's like, okay, you know, you'll look at somebody and they say, oh, I wish their, that dress didn't look that good or I wish their hair would look like something else or whatever it is, but it's really irrelevant. Yeah. And then you add to it, don't lose your days uh, to rotten people. Yeah, well, our lives are filled with them, unfortunately. There's, you know, for whatever reason, I think some people just have the disposition of being kind of rotten. And then I think what happens for some of us is when we start chasing dreams and we start achieving some of them, people don't like that. It's threatening to people when they see someone moving through life and with positivity and meaning. I just had the experience where someone asked me, how are you doing, Matt? And I said, I'm doing great. And she said, you're always great you're always great. And she was so angry at me for always being great. And I think what it is, is it's a threat to that person because they're not always great. And rather than seeking ways to have better days, they instead want everyone to sort of come down to them. So we have to recognize when there's people in our lives that are not productive for us. And then we have to do something about it. Like the recognition is not enough. So, you know, I, I give lots of tips. I, well, elimination is the best one, which is get them out of your life. Now, you can't always do that. If it's your neighbor, if it's your sister, like those people, you can't sort of eliminate completely from your life, you know, but I tell people things like if you can find forgiveness for what they're doing, that's probably the best thing you can do. Because once you can forgive someone, you can sort of let go of everything they're doing. I don't have 
the capacity for forgiveness to the degree I wish I had. I think there's wonderful people in the world who can, but I can't. And so then I try to lean on empathy, which is I can't forgive you for your rottenness, but if I can find out why you're rotten, if I can understand that like your marriage is falling apart and that's why you're treating me badly, I don't have to feel the sting of what you're doing to me anymore because I understand it's not coming from a place of, I wanna hurt you. It's coming from a place of you are hurting. And that has always helped me. And, and then I'm able to deal with those people in a much more positive way. They don't impact me negatively. And then I can move on through life. And if none of those things work, then I use what I call the enemies list, which I actually think is so helpful for me, which is someone has done something wrong to me or to one of my loved ones. And it's so egregious that I can't let it go. I can't forgive and no empathy can be had and I can't eliminate them. It's just awful and unforgettable and unforgivable. And so I have a list on my phone called the enemies list that right now it has nine people on it. It's had nine people for a long time. And it's just my way of offloading the anger that I have, the frustration that I have onto a list. It allows me to say, it's on a list, so I'm not gonna forget about it. I'm going to destroy that person someday, but I'm not gonna destroy them today. So I'm gonna put them on the list and then move on. And truly for me, it has allowed me to release anger and frustration with the knowledge that someday I will come back and get my revenge, but it won't be today. This really works for a lot of people who I've heard that I work with, which they're saying that as long as I don't have the revenge, I don't feel completely satisfied. Like if I've been hurt, I want the other person to also feel hurt and understand how I have been hurt. I What I do, I don't have that, that, that notion that I that I have, as long as they're not in my life, I'm okay. I don't have to have it come back. Uh, but I know I work with a lot of people who do need to have a comeback. So for me, I've created circles, which is you come from people I don't know, and they're in the universe, and I don't know, I've never met them, will never meet them. They have no significance in my life, and I will not have significance in their life. And then, you know, their acquaintances and then like family members or friends and then very close, close niche where I share everything and all of that. And then when somebody comes into these uh, uh, closer circles and hurt me, um, then, you know, try to clarify, doesn't work. Then they move along the circle back at uh. you know, going all the way to the circle that it's among 8 billion people that I don't know. I don't want to know. Uh, they don't care for me. And even if people are holding grudges on me, they just go back. It's like, you know, if, it, if you care to cl clarify and solve, come over, let's talk, let's solve. But if you're just going to hold your um, vengeance, um, then you could be among the 8 million people who could just have vengeance, but not in my circle. So I've designed it in that way. Yeah, that's so instead of elimination, you're sort of mitigation. Like I can't eliminate them, but I can move them as far away mentally and maybe even physically as possible so that they don't impact me. That's pretty good. You know, for me, most of the people on my enemies list are people who have wronged loved ones. So rather than people who have done something to me, it is you did something terrible to someone I love. And for some reason, for me, that gets up my dander more than anyone who does something to me specifically. And those are the ones I think, you hurt my wife, I now must destroy you someday. <laughs> um, but it's not today. So I like that though. I love that idea of circles. So I can push those people out to a different circle 
you know, sort of out on the horizon where I don't have to see them or think about them. That's great. Matthew Dix, uh, the book, you guys, it's written beautifully. Someday oh, okay. is today. Um, 22 simple actionable ways to propel your creative life. It's an easy read. It's fun. It's storytelling as Matthew um, is a master in storytelling. And it's deep. It's light. It's fun. And it has a lot of great points. So I really recommend this book. Matthew, anything we haven't said that you really want everybody to know? Well, I guess the one thing we didn't talk about that I just want people to be thinking about all the time is I have a belief in saying yes to everything. I want people to sort of be aware that there's so few times in our lives when a door is open for us and we have an opportunity. And in my life and in so many people's lives, it's the crazy thing that we do, the one thing we don't think we should do or that we don't want to do that we decide to give it a try that changes our lives. Just remember the yes can always be turned into a no later on. But if you initially say no to an opportunity, you've often closed the door forever. So if someone today or tomorrow or this week makes an offer to you, says, try this thing, even if your instinct says, no, it's not what I wanna do, it's not what will help me, avoid all the hubris. You have no idea what's behind that door. So, so say yes, and if it doesn't work out, close the door, say, no, thank you, I'm done with that. But um, keep yourself open to opportunities because I don't think they come very often in this life and we have to grab them when we see them. I think that's a very good point. I remember the, the last book that I wrote that it just came out it was funny because I had gone, I was dizzy and I went to a neurologist and after doing all of the tests, they said, you're tired and um, you're just putting too much on yourself. So my suggestion is only work Monday, Tuesday, take off Wednesday, work Thursday and Friday and maybe even half the time Saturday, but you know, take off Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday. So I come back from a neurologist. The next day, my girlfriend calls me and says, I want to come and see you because I want to you know, talk to you about something. So she comes and she's, how are you? And I'm sharing all this, you know, I went to a neurologist, blah, blah, blah. And I said all of this. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. I came to pro create a proposal for you and say for you to share something with me. And I'm like, don't worry about what the neurologist said, say what you need to say. So she says, let's do it. Um, let's do a book. Um, and, um, uh, you know, with about children and uh, raising and developmental cycles and stuff. And I said, well, the only books that I'm doing right now are about my model, the awareness integration. She says, okay, well, let's do it. And then we got on, we brought another um, one of our colleagues and the book just came out like two weeks ago, Intentional Parenting. But it was the same concept that you're talking about, that regardless, I was going to say yes. And, um, you know, how to bring it and put it and efficiently fit it into a system. And um, we did it. So I do agree with you that considering and saying yes is, is what moves us forward versus what you said, you know, after if we're 100 years old and laying uh, on the deathbed and all of the regrets about why didn't I say yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I am deeply obsessed with the idea that I want people to feel as good as possible about their lives when they're coming to the end of them. I think that is a blessing that I hope everyone can find in their lives and I don't think enough people do. So I'm hoping that more yeses lead to better, you know, better ends of life and better um, feelings of fulfillment at the end of your life. Yes. 
So someday, everyone, someday is today, 22 simple actionable ways to, pro to propel your creative life by Matthew Diggs. Matthew, where can people find you? Oh, if they, if they go to matthewdix.com, everything is there. You can get my books wherever books are sold, but the matthewdix.com will point you to everything. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.